And welcome to This Movie is Gay, a podcast that takes apparently heterosexual films and demonstrates why that is not the case. I'm Haley. I'm Emma. And we wanted to start um, on a slightly unusually uh, earnest note this week because (laughs) um, we sort of wanted to address the movie that we've decided to talk about this week, which is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, because obviously J.K. Rowling is a horrible turf bigot and... um, has used her wealth and prestige to advance really horrible, hateful views about trans and queer people. And so we really deliberated about whether or not to do this movie and sort of add it to the lineup um, mm-hmm. and obviously landed on the side of doing it. And so we just sort of wanted to acknowledge that choice and sort of reassure anyone who is worried that we are sort of being flippant about mm. her and her sort of beliefs that we are totally on board with you, totally understand if you are not interested in listening to a dissection of anything related to her work, but we sort of landed on the side of thinking that this is something with massive cultural impact, especially for people of our generation, and that is worth talking about. Though we will assure you that no money went to J.K. Rowling (laughs) in the production of this. Yes. That's great. No, yeah, no money was misspent uh, in the making of this podcast. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's great. I mean, it's just like, you know, remember, remember that time when potentially, you know, the most influential author of our time turned out to be a huge bag of garbage. What a bummer. But the thing is like, yes, it's a huge bummer. And also like, you know, her politics are personally offensive to us on like every single level. But um, the thing about the work, because obviously we'll be talking about the film in particular, because that's what we do. But also I just want to add that there's something not, I don't know, not in a petty revenge way, but sort of comical and interesting to me about like, acknowledging all of the the various current bullshittery of the author of these books and also like in I don't know thinking about queerness in a way that perhaps she didn't intend but that indeed resonates in the work you know what I mean I feel like that's sort of like something that means a lot to a lot of people and we're by no means the first people to have spotted it or witnessed it or wanted to discuss it and that feels relevant Absolutely. Um, and I think that segues really nicely into a quotation that I have been wanting to bring into this podcast basically since we started it. Um, it is from a Paris Review article called Harry Potter and the Secret Gay Love Story, um, which is an incredible essay. And I'm going to quote it at some length. Please bear with me. So it says, the summer of 2003 was the summer of noticing It was the summer I sat alone for hours in my mother's parked car, blasting Queen's The Show Must Go On, track 17 on my favorite CD, and luxuriating in body-racking sobs of grief for Sirius Black, sorrow for Remus Lupin, and ecstatic rapture that I'd noticed. We took to the internet those of us who had noticed and compared notes. Often these notes took the form of fan fiction, which I read ravenously, not hungry so much for erotica as for the full novelistic experience Rowling had invited us to imagine. A boarding school romance termed wartime tragedy. Morris meets the Animorphs. Morris meets atonement by way of Animorphs. Seriously, can you imagine? But for much of that summer, we simply studied Rowling's text, searching, scrutinizing, noticing. To put it another way, we invented close reading. I am obsessed with that passage. And yeah, as... For full disclosure, that passage may have been the thing that actually really tipped the scales for me in terms of wanting to do this episode because Haley read me that passage when we like conceived of this podcast, like literally months ago. And I was like, that and that alone is the reason to do this deep dive because I I love it so much. <laughs> it is really the origin story, like for yeah. I think so many, I mean, not straight people as well, I think, mm. but you know, uh, people who are interested in close reading pop culture and sort of excavating the kinds of currents that we've now spent Mm -hmm. 14 episodes uh proking at yeah yeah that's yeah I mean I just have so many like actually deep feelings about that and I mean you as if we touch on the kind of fanfic elements or whatever the the currents of that as we go through the podcast you'll have to speak to that as more of a resident expert on as (laughs) someone who I personally did not actually ever read any of the Harry Potter adjacent fanfic I mean, you had friends, so. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, you, in fact, sent me a PDF 
of a serious Lupin fanfic earlier this summer. (laughs) I did. I know that you have some familiarity and I would, I am more interested now that I would have been as a youth perhaps, but yeah, I mean, as a premise, I'm deeply, deeply fascinated by what queer teens got out of it at the time and maybe out of the film as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that turning to the film, I have another, another quotation, Mm. um, in sort of thinking, because I think one of the sort of cases that we sort of considered when deciding whether or not to do this film is sort of the idea that like, is the film different from the book in any meaningful way? Like, can we think of it not as a piece of art whose artist has foreclosed any interesting readings by being a dick, but something (laughs) separate? And I found this quote from David Thewlis who plays Lupin in the movie. Um, And he said uh, in a interview with um, Toronto City News, uh, the funny thing when Afonso Cuaron directed The Prisoner of Azkaban, the first film that I appear in, he had the idea that Lupin was gay and he described my character like a gay junkie. <laughs> so <laughs> I I mean, Alfonso Cuaron, this this werewolf is gay. The title yeah. Of this episode. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I realize we've uh, breezed right on past the part of the podcast where we usually summarize the plot. I don't know if there's any need to do that. <laughs> See, there's these three, th- these three friends who go to a magical school. and <laughs> I mean, yeah. And in their third year of school, they have a teacher who turns out to be a werewolf and is also a homosexual. And- Very good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's this thing about the defense against the dark arts position being sort of cursed. There's a new one every year. He's the one this year. They're always sort of thematically relevant and more relevant to the plot than any of the other teachers. You remember. Yeah. It's, it's fucking you remember Harry Potter. how it goes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so that is the sort of argument. Is it even an argument? This is the like well-known, widely accepted case that we are delving into today what's interesting about yeah I mean I don't I think that it took me a long time I wasn't as deep I should say into sort of Harry Potter and the culture thereof as a youth as many of other people I did read all the books and I did see all the movies but I didn't again you had friends so you had other (laughs) things on your mind well I also went to boarding school in the woods as we've established so I wasn't I didn't do as much movie going recreationally as a lot of other people did but um I'm interested in this being like, how established a case is it? You know what I mean? Like, cause that's what I, what I think is so interesting. And what I love so much about the passage that you read, um, not of David Thewlis, but the, the, the quote about close reading is the fact that like, there's this weird, like secret fraternity that has always existed among like sort of queer youth about, you know, that the way that that article phrases that I love of like the people who notice of like, we, the ones who noticed, like hung around noticing. And it's interesting to me how, uh, if that, how widespread, if that is just a sort of in the club understanding or whether or not that would be, that take would be a surprise to the sort of uninitiated, like to the sort of straight layperson, you yeah. know, like, is it there if you don't look for it? And when you look for it, what do you find? I feel like it's, it's a really good example of why we do this podcast, you know, generally of sort of like what's under the hood there, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I will say, I think anyone listening to this podcast is one of the initiated in many ways. Well, but, right. Uh, I think that's still a great point. Mm. Um, yeah, what's interesting for me is the movies, I sort of uh, saw them in like a perfunctory way out of a sense of duty and always hated them. And I will say revisiting <laughs> this, I'm like, these movies are awful. And I wasn't just being a little snob as a child. These are bad movies. Um, they are almost categorically. Oh my God, this was so hard to get through. It's so boring. (laughs) I should say I love Alfonso Cuaron deeply. And I think he makes some stylish choices. But yeah, I think we just kept, I mean, as we were watching it, we just kept talking about the problem of adaptation of long, incredibly plot heavy, like slight, you know, sort of detailed to a fault novels of kind of like, you're never going to be able to elegantly fit everything in one of these freaking books into like an appropriately sized film. So the movies always feel paced super weird. Like they're either speeding way too quickly through stuff that should take more time or taking forever on stuff that seems not to matter. So it's just like, where are we in the plot at any given moment? 
It's simultaneously thin and dense and just and like dense, <clears throat> yes. inconsequential and too long. It's truly, I mean, it's the the inevitable outcome of making a movie of something incredibly popular while those books are still coming out because yeah. you're trying to be faithful and right. actually faithful adaptations usually suck. True, frankly, true. Yeah, and it's interesting because I feel like I'm not surprised that Quaron had that view of the character. And I guess what I'm really interested in is, is thinking about the framing of like why in Alfonso Quaron's envisioning of this character for his piece of art, which is this film, did he and David Thewlis decide amongst themselves that yes, he's gay. He's obviously gay. That just informs the character. Yeah. So let you know that's just so interesting that I that's think, explicit to them. Yeah, I think that's the sort of frame to take right. is why. What about the character? Did they read as obviously gay, and how did they then express that? Yes, in this movie? exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess it's like a little bit different than, it's the same and different than our usual conversations because this evidence of like, nope, the artists made this choice is like more explicit than we would normally go. But because it's drawn from this like canon of stories where that is not explicitly clear. Yeah, well, and then in the, I cut off the quote before I got to that, but the, in that mm. same quote, Theolis is like, and then he gets married and had kids. So I guess he's not gay actually. I mean, by erasure, <laughs> but- you know <laughs> true 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 but yeah so for the purposes of specifically the prisoner of azkaban this werewolf is gay tm 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 why is it so yeah i think that's great so maybe we should begin with the thing you just said which is because it is spooktober and we've sort of been making a run through we, we rejected our vampire idea and instead of making a run through supernatural <laughs> creatures we had yeah some vampires we had um frankenstein and now we've, we've done got, witches we've got witches and yeah. now we've got werewolves yes. and so maybe this is sort of part four of our question mm -hmm. of like are supernatural creatures just gay totally yeah and we have the fifth i feel like i can spoil what the spook is next week because we know what it is the fifth is ghosts so we will have had witches vampires frankenstein werewolves and ghosts so i feel pretty good about the sort of like we've got the full set for october that was part that was that influenced our lupin is gay decision i feel like got to we wanted yeah and neither of us had seen um an american werewolf in london which was the other one that people kept suggesting so yeah here we yeah. are werewolves so here we are are werewolves just gay? I mean, like, let's get off the table, I guess. <laughs> J.K. Rowling's horrible. I've complained about this in previous episodes. Her terrible, terrible thing that <sighs> werewolves are somehow a metaphor or inspired by AIDS. Ugh, Awful, rough. wretched, offensive in every way. Let's just yeah. dismiss yet, that <laughs> at once. Right. And so do you need to elucidate for the listener what that take is so that we can know how bullshit it is? I mean, it's just the idea that like she was inspired by, I mean, I think mm. it's as usual with JK Rowling, it's a mix of things that are actually offensive and things that are perhaps just poorly phrased. I mean, I think what she <laughs> said is that like yes. the stigma faced by people with AIDS, especially in like the 80s okay. and 90s. Because right. obviously we all forget the books are set in like the early to mid 90s. We do um, all forget that. Yes. Uh, inspired how she felt the world would treat okay. werewolves. And that was something she sort of said relatively early on, which fed in at the time to people being like, Zoe oh, is gay, yeah, <laughs> which right, is okay. also sort of a problematic association, but one that we understand. Um, but right. then you get into like these same questions I mean, it, it, the sort of contagion element, I guess, works marginally better for AIDS than it does mm -hmm. for queerness. But mm -hmm. the werewolf characters that are then depicted in the books are these like violent, predatory yeah. beings. One of them is like explicitly noted as wanting to attack children and yeah. wanting to get revenge on normal people by infecting them, which are right. just like so tapping really into like <laughs> the most hideous and pernicious stereotypes about gay people and AIDS that you could possibly compile into a fantasy children's character. It's so bad. So we love that. Let's throw that out with the bathwater right away. Let's just throw that, that right out of the room. In old garbage. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that we've also already had a, we had to have a, due to Lost Boys and the 80s, we had to have the, is this an allegory for AIDS conversation already about vampires? Yeah, well, and again, and I'll say what I say again. It's like, I think if yeah. we're making the case that like werewolves 
are a metaphor for being gay. Like the infectious element is a big problem for me. Right. And we felt that way about vampires as well. The idea of, of, yeah, the sort of the, yeah, the infection element is problematic if that's, if that's the angle. Yeah. Especially again, I think even more in this when lycanthropy, werewolfism, whatever is Mm. like only a bad thing. Right. And also perhaps the gayest and also maybe most problematic element of Lupin, I guess, as a character is the fact that it is not, there's something a little bit sexy and glam about vampires. I feel like we all agree. Being a werewolf is a massive inconvenience and private shame and horror to him. Yeah. So it's not like, because like, you know, vampires, I feel like almost always are like, yeah, we live in the dark underbelly of society, but it's sexy over here. And there's a lot of like silk and we have weird teeth and it's all really hot. Join us, Michael. Yeah. Join us, Michael. But whereas like drink my blood, but like, whereas werewolves seem to be just like, wow, this is a huge inconvenience. Never look at the moon, stay in your house. Don't tell anyone like what a bummer this is for me. Huge, huge bummer. Yeah. absolutely which is interesting I mean and I think there's the sort of like part of Harry Potter that I think is really under discussed because under understood (laughs) what an infelicitous phrase that was Um, (laughs) yeah but then you said infelicitous which I loved (laughs) it was coming out of my mouth and I was like don't mispronounce this word Um, loved it is its connection to British boarding school books and like that as a genre. And I think that thinking of it as a story that is sort of like in its DNA riffing on Mm. stories from the 19th and early 20th century, thinking Mm. about gayness as shame is not out of place. Well, right. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. It feels very at home with the lineage of the British boarding school book in a sense. Yeah. Well, also because he's, um, I mean, we're going to get into this angle a bunch, but also because simultaneously he has this like dark, shameful secret. And also he's the inspirational teacher in the inspirational teacher genre that we love so much that is so gay. Yeah. And he's also the like sole survivor, loved mm-hmm. his friends so much. Like, right can't ever have a normal life perhaps because of his trauma or perhaps Mm. because he never could have which also feels like a staple of the like world war one boys school totally totally there is something very kind of old academia throwback about Lupin as well you know in the kind of like that's in his design in this Mm -hmm. film too when we were rewatching it I talk about clothes a lot and I know it's annoying but it's also no it's great it's design stuff when we were rewatching it I was like they just love to put this man in an oversized cardigan it's It's the most ill-fitting sweater I've ever seen a human wear yeah, in a very like worn, of course I have no time to attend to my wardrobe. I'm a poor academic. Like, in a like, there's something sort of like old school gentlemanly down on his luck about Lupin, which is very gay in the early 20th century. Yeah, yeah. The elbow patches and the, elbow the sort patches. of inability to marry for non-specific reasons, inability to sort of make a yeah. proper life for himself, despite yeah. obviously being incredibly talented, incredibly kind. Yes. Like all yeah. of the sort of elements that should lead to success inexplicably not. Don't. Right, exactly. And it just doesn't line up in this sort of like strange way. And I mean, I know we're jumping all around, but it's also something that really struck me is at the very end of the film, which obviously we'll get to. Um, so used to having to leave places at a moment's notice that his luggage perfectly automatically packs itself mm-hmm. in that like he's literally always ready at like the drop of a hat to like snap his fingers and his stuff just packs itself and he leaves and I know that like he's the wizard and it's a magical world but also like that's really sad like to that he's orchestrated this way to be like if I have to leave I have to leave boom gone well he frames it that way he has it's yeah. like he has this line that's like oh don't worry I'm used to it and then he flicks yeah. his wand and his shoes and his thing all jumps together and like snaps snap snap and like shuts so right exactly that's really sad invites us to think that this is um that that it is exactly as you've described not just like magic packing no yeah it's sad gay I often have to leave because I uh, have to wander through the world without a permanent fixture like you know without a permanent place yeah Mm -hmm. 
I mean, so let's take a moment and step back and sort of think yeah. about the werewolf thing and sort of how it threads through <laughs> yes, the story. Please. I mean, because I think the first sort of hint we get, the first like moment it's addressed is the scene that um, we can actually say a lot of things about, but yeah. uh, it's the scene where he has the students um, face a bogart in the closet which, you know, emerges from the closet and takes on the shape of your greatest fears. And they're all like, some of them are truly horrific. Some of the things they turned it into to be funny are even scarier. Yes. We are really not fans of the big Jack in the box thing that something turns into. And it's like supposed to be the funny version and it's actually deeply horrifying. It's even worse. Um, Or the spider on roller skates. Bad. All bad. But uh, he sort of jumps in to face it and it turns into the moon the moon um and so it's this like funny moment i mean it's like even weirder in the book they sort of because it's like through harry's point of view it gets described and it's like you're sort of like well, what is it but in right, the movie he describes it as like a floating like orb that yeah they think like it's anything. a crystal ball yeah um but this is very obviously like the moon with clouds drifting across it like there's no mistaking it um right. and i mean we were just joking as we were watching like well when your greatest fear is your true self coming out of the closet. Listen. You might be gay. <laughs> yeah. If your greatest fear is the manifestation of your true nature and it comes to face you out of a closet, you you might be gay and your metaphor might be a bit heavy handed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We were pretty pleased with ourselves with that one, the coming out of the closet part. But it is like, you yeah. know, very early on, we're sort of given yeah. these like, there's something. He seems so nice. <laughs> he seems so nice. He has all these remedies. He has chocolate in his pockets all the time. What a nice man. <laughs> what a nice man. Yeah. I mean, and I guess this maybe is going to make us very scattered, but sort of while we're kind of on this scene, the other thing that really struck us was it feels like a really direct and deliberate reference to the Dead Poet Society. Yes. Yeah, the having the kids line up and then, you know, instead of obviously we we recognize it as a reference to the the kick line in the Dead Poet Society where they're doing the soccer like kicks and having to say the big inspirational quotes as they do it. But also the in that scene in Dead Poet Society, um Mr. Keating is playing uh like classical music on um like a, I wanted to say phonograph on like a, on a turntable on like vinyl. Yeah. And uh, in this scene in Harry Potter, Lupin puts on actual vinyl on like a turntable. And what's weird about that is that's a very non-wizardy thing to do. Like it's a very analog thing for a wizard professor in Harry Potter to do. Yeah, it's a hundred percent a director edition because it's obviously not referenced in the book, and it sort of becomes a motif for Lupin for the rest of the movie. Yeah, um, and it—I mean, it, yeah. Just watching it, having watched Dead Poets Society just a couple weeks ago, I was like, yeah. uh, obviously, that's what this is referencing. Absolutely. Like um, yeah, which inspirational is, teacher movie? <laughs> yeah, for sort of the only you said at the beginning, like the thing in Harry Potter that's a different defensive against the dark arts teacher every year. But Lupin is the one who most fully kind of fills the like inspirational teacher yeah. uh, archetype. And yeah, for sure. sort of his arc is most that where he's sort of the one who is unjustly he's the only one you're sorry to see go at the end of the well they're at the all end of terrible the movie. except for him i was he's just thinking back yeah the they're all only awful. good teacher they have yeah. and with the exception i would say of mcgonagall arguably the only good teacher in the school at hogwarts so that's what i was gonna say too is i was like listen no shade I, no shade to our friend hagrid who you know lands people in the hospital constantly but like yeah i feel like he is frankly the only teacher at hogwarts um but it is like it's absolutely that arc and like it's really i think that's like another thread to draw yeah. through is like how is the sort of one of the sort of ways that they choose or that Cameron chooses to gesture at his like gayness or maybe yes. derives his sense of his gayness is through these kind of inspirational teacher movie beats that mm. his story kind of matches 100% yeah yeah it just feels like such a direct nod and then he fulfills like I don't know the, the movie's only intimate two scenes are Lupin and Harry having yeah. conversations you know we were sort of surprised when we rewatched the movie uh, how quickly 
I can't remember how it's established in the book or how much more time it takes, but how quickly their intimacy kind of takes off. And they have this like really confessional, like Lupin is obviously like really quickly identified as like the only adults that Harry can like go speak to. And like, I don't know, like all of a sudden they're having really, really sensitive conversate like heart-to-heart conversations in like beautiful natural surroundings they keep like taking walks in all of these like fern groves in the forest and stuff and you're just like okay like we're really doing it like it comes out of absolutely nowhere it's terrible writing (laughs) really bad screenwriting they've had one scene which is on the train on the way over when Ron and Hermione are also there when Lupin is like have this chocolate dementor time and then they're at school and then we have the Bogart scene and then right away after that they have like an intimate personal relationship where they have all these chats when no one else is there yeah that's that's that scene on the bridge where he talks about Lily which we'll get to um And I think the other sort of inspirational teacher element is, I mean, I feel like I'm always justifying bad writing or like, (laughs) but it's like in their sort of instant intimacy, which we as readers of the books know is shorthand for the assumption that everyone has read these books and doesn't need the explanation. There is also something in the like, (laughs) it's just this inexpressible connection. They've just Mm -hmm. seen each other and found something in each other. And like, it is a thing that cannot be sort of justified in narrative terms. It just like is. Mm. And that feels very um, inspirational teacher, but also kind of gay in the way that, you know, you, I mean, (laughs) we think queer people gravitate to each other even when they don't know it. And the way that like, I think young, you know, I think a lot of sort of, young queer people will be drawn to like the teachers they later find out were also gay and stuff like that and I think that's sort of what at the heart at the heart of what makes this sort of inspirational teacher dynamic feel really queer especially in this instance is this feeling Mm -hmm. of like for a series that in general is about Harry's relationship with his friends this is a movie in particular that feels like the only person he can turn to and relate to is this adult and like Mm. they share a connection that like nobody else in Harry's life can understand. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because even though it puts Harry in a position that in other books and movies like this is usually occupied by a queer protagonist, you know, it's interesting Mm -hmm. because it, because Harry isn't coded gay. I feel like, you know, I mean like that's not part of his storytelling, but the position in the narrative is a really interesting thing because it definitely is What's weird about it is that it definitely is a connection based on like a sensitivity in me recognizes a sensitivity in you. And they are, that was like, that was like the gay namaste right there. (laughs) I was like, the sensitive thing in me, the soft boy in me recognizes the soft boy in you. But, um, but it is like, uh, you know, it's based on an assumption of differentness and like outsidership of like, because the fact about Harry is that he is an outsider forever, even though it's not because of that. Yeah, and a couple of the conversations they have are sort of like about masculinity and about kind of courage and about fragility and like Harry feeling like he's not strong enough and Lupin being like, that's bullshit. Mm. Like you are, you know, fragile because you've seen trauma, but that doesn't make you weak. Right. And of course, like the thing that really kind of gutted me when we were watching specifically to analyze it through this lens was the sense that it's actually really moving for that to be the lesson that only the gay professor can teach about like literally the magic of like the Patronus thing, which is what Lupin's here to teach is the fact, you know, the idea that like in order to defeat darkness, what you literally have to do is like summon all of the beauty and like light within yourself and then turn it back on the world. And the fact that like, you know, that's how you face your trauma. Like, you know, your trauma is coming to get you and all you can do is like, gather your like the light of your community within you and turn it back on the drama and that's like he would know because he's a gay werewolf like you know like that's the thing of that only it goes it goes a really long way to sort of counterbalancing the idea that like if part of the sort of queer experiences embodied by loop in the gay werewolf is shame then the other part is pride right it's joy and it's Mm -hmm. belief and it's um yeah the yeah. idea that that is stronger than, you know, fear and darkness and hate. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, and that is like, that's why, I mean, you know, that's, there is some real beauty in that as it's expressed in this film and this performance, I think. I think David Thewlis puts that idea across really sensitively in the performance, which is why it's so memorable. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, oh. I think the series overall would have been more beautiful and interesting if it had recognized that that was like mm-hmm. one of the most beautiful core messages that it had to impart. 100%. 100%. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think that, you know, that leads nicely in a way into the idea that like the other thing that sort of binds them together is like sadness and loss and trauma. And like if yes. Harry is not coded queer, it's because like the thing that they share isn't their sexuality. It's right. James. <laughs> well, right. It's like it's loss. And also they've lost the same people. Yeah. So that's what's so odd is that like, of course, only Lupin can understand or like can speak to Harry in that kind of way, because like his they have the same people. And also, I mean, Lupin even has this line in the movie where he says it's unfair that I got to spend so much time with them and you so little. Yeah. Of like that. And that's actually really beautiful, which is why he has like sort of, I don't know, like a parental vibe too. But yeah. Yeah. And there's like, I mean, and again, like we said a minute ago, there's something in the sort of like, you know, lost generation, like soul mm-hmm. survivor of the trenches. It really is very World War One, honestly. Yeah, it yes. is. I mean, I guess because it's like his aesthetic is like really all the kids are wearing like the height of 2004 fashion. And he like all of the adults in the Harry Potter movies, this is something that feels a lot more sort of like Victorian to Edwardian. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But I guess he's sort fashion of veering into the he's very into the 40s as well, especially because yes. he plays swing music. He does play swing music and, and he wears like a tie and a sort of rumply button up shirt and a soft cardigan, which feels very 40s. Yeah, but similarly, like kind of aftermath of a war, like 1948. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, there is something. Well, I mean, that's his position, right? There is something that is genuinely last man standing about Lupin, which like, obviously, I understand why people see the AIDS narrative in that. But I also understand why. I mean, I feel like you've hit on something really interesting of like, I mean, actually, technically in the story of Harry Potter, I suppose, like the rest of them sort of did disappear in a war, like everybody else who was in his kind of army and like friendship group and whatever you know it's yeah interesting. he's all yeah. alone he's all alone yeah I mean and I think that like again this is something that really fits into the sort of like British boarding school but also like sort of classic literature vibe the sense that like I was reading this thing the other day that like so often in sort of like literature there's a sense that like queer things exist in the past like when you were a kid that's mm-hmm. when like those relationships were the sort of like queer tinged one, but they're behind us now. So it's like, it's okay. And it's safe to kind of feel them that way. Mm. Um, I mean, it's the sort of like Brideshead Revisited thing, isn't it? It's like 100%. Cool. Um, well, and, and that's Morris too, which your, which your passage that you read at the beginning recognizes of like, it's Morris plus atonement by way of Animorphs, which is the best possible description of the genre. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it totally is. Which, I mean, since you, because the Animorphs part, <laughs> I like how I'm still clinging to the idea that somebody doesn't know the plot of this, but it is really interesting because it's like <gasps> the friendships that he lost, which are, to be clear, with Harry's dad, mm-hmm. godfather, and then their other friend, um, <laughs> are these like sort of, again, like it's the boarding school movie, like we were inseparable, we were so close. They loved me so much that they learned like super advanced illegal magic in order to turn into animals in order to like accompany me when I became a werewolf, becoming the only people that I could confide in and who could see mm-hmm. me in all of myself. Yes. Like the um, only friends he ever had who could encounter him in any form. Yeah, that's really good. And I mean, since you've brought it there, we might as well jump to the fact that people who are like deep serious Lupin stands will be annoyed that we've gotten this far without mentioning Sirius in a in a direct context to him. But he's barely in the film, to be fair to us. He is, and but, it's also sort of not what came up in that no. quote, which we're sort of using as our jumping off point. Like it right. wasn't even that, like, oh well, I thought Lupin was gay because of his thing with Sirius. It was just like right. he's like a gay junkie. He's just gay. I'm junkie. Where does that come in? I guess it's the AIDS thing. I think it's also the werewolf thing of like oh, there's right. something a little you know, there's something a little bit like um seedy and seedy and underworldy about it. You know, which I feel like is sort of right. And it has to be a secret, you know. I feel like I understand why Quaron would kind of lump that. But yeah. the um, also the scars, which we'll get to in a minute. But um, that feels a little bit junky to me. But uh, 
where was I going with that? With serious um, oh, black. well, because you, you, our buddy, Gary Oldman, um, because you brought up the fact that even though it's not referenced in the film, everybody knows in the books, the story is that all of the friends decided to be able, you know, to turn, be able to turn into animals in order to like support him when he involuntarily becomes a werewolf and, um, Sirius turns into a dog, mm-hmm. which is as you pointed out when we were rewatching it, actually really interesting considering that like that's the closest, it's the closest possible animal to what Lupin turns into. And then later in this film, they have a fight as dogs. Yeah, dog fight, sort of. Which we'll I get mean, to that. <laughs> yeah, the werewolf design upsets me. I know. In this movie. It's my, I know. I mean, but maybe, maybe, maybe we should sort of transition to talking about mm-hmm. Sirius and Lupin. Because I think on the one hand, you know, they're... One of the people that sort of Lupin thinks he's lost that adds to his sort of like pervasive sense of gay melancholy is Sirius Black, <laughs> who was best friends with Harry's dad, best friends with Lupin, um, accused of selling out mm-hmm. James and Lily, killing their other friend and has been in prison growing his hair and losing his mind for 14 years <laughs> growing his hair but losing his mind <laughs> for 13 years um very good. and that's the sort of locus I mean like as that quotation I read at the beginning says like this is where this is the real this is the real shit this is the real shit right and you know what's interesting that didn't sort of strike me I had to ask Haley for clarification when we were rewatching the film because I couldn't remember the plot um that um about That's whether why I keep or not summarizing it thank you just just keep telling me what happens because I was just lost in gay sweater land um the thing is um the, my question was I had to be reminded whether or not in the film as it goes whether Lupin believes what everyone else believes which is that Sirius did in fact kill these people just you know and then go to prison forever and that he actually like you know whether Lupin at his in his emotional reality for most of the film thinks of that as a deep and horrible betrayal which is how it's been sold to Harry and the answer is yes he does until the sort of you know I mean one assumes until the kind of critical turn in the middle of the movie when Harry gives him the Marauder's Map back and then he starts to piece the you know he later references that he kind of pieced it together because of the thing of Peter Pettigrew still being alive and him being a rat and et cetera. So he figures it out himself. But for most of the movie, that super melancholic gay sadness is particularly because this best friend that he lost, he thinks committed a horrible betrayal. Yeah. And to like back up a little bit, he's under suspicion for it. Like Snape has this vendetta where every turn he sort of is reminding Mm -hmm. Dumbledore like, oh, wow, because Sirius Black has escaped from prison at the beginning of the movie. That's the whole thing. And he's somewhere at Hogwarts. They think he's looking for Harry. And he like breaks into the castle at one point. And we sort of hear Snape telling Dumbledore like, well, I could remind you that like I was very concerned about Professor. And you're like, well, obviously it's Lupin. Right. And then Dumbledore's like, shush, shush, shush. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Also, Snape concern is a whole thread of this movie as well, really, when you when you factor in the kind of like weaseling out of Lupin's secrets and the way that Snape, in a couple of different ways, tries to undermine him, because also, as everybody knows, Snape was also at school with them. And, you know, weaselly Snape concern is a big, like, part of the social dynamic of the film. Yeah, well, and his, his it takes the form of, like, wanting to out him. Yeah, he's basically constantly trying to out him. And he has that like hushed little conversation with Dumbledore. But then also he knows, obviously he knows the secret, you know, the secret that he's a werewolf and so does Dumbledore. And so one presumes does the entire faculty. But um, when Lupin is out of commish because he's werewolfing, um, Snape takes over the defense against the dark arts classroom in that really, really great RIP Alan Rickman way where he stomps in and is like, turn to the page. And then he makes them turn to the werewolf page and asks a bunch of really, really specific questions about werewolves. And he says, and specifically recognizing them. Yes. And for him to come into the classroom with all of the kids who are Lupin students and be like, with specific emphasis on recognizing them. And also what's so funny about that is that Hermione then later is of course the only one who puts it together, but it's also like, 
he makes it so obvious and the Lupin Boggart of the moon is so obvious. Rewatching it, I was like, it's not that clever, Hermione. I'm surprised 90% of this class didn't figure it out. It's because the rest of the class are not stupid and they know that you never do homework set by a substitute teacher. There you go. Yeah, Haley made that point, which I thought was quite clever of like, listen, no one's going to do this essay, Snape. You don't really teach this class. You fool. (laughs) But I mean, something that just occurred to me when you referenced him sort of being out sick because he's werewolfing is like another (laughs) sort of like literary vibe that that kind of made me think of is the sort of like thinking of like Jane Eyre and um, some Dickens novels. Yes. The like sickly friend, the sort of nondescriptly sickly friend who always feels a little gay Ooh. as well. Yeah. Ooh, that's really good. I'm going to be pressed to think of, uh, to think of an example really soon of other sickly friends. Cause there's a bunch. Yeah. But it's, yeah. I was just thinking about the idea that like that's such, it's not so much in the movie, but in the books, so that's mm. like a huge emphasis of his appearance is that he always looks unwell. Yes. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's partly the junkie. That's why Quaron wanted to bend it in that direction as well, is that he looks a little bit wan constantly. Yeah. And there's you know? a scene that him and Harry have like in the aftermath of the Snape substitution episode um, <laughs> where they're sort of walking through some beautiful forest and ferns and he's sort of like visibly pale and out of breath and like yeah. kind of struggling to keep up. Yeah. Isn't he limping for part of the movie? Because after that werewolf thing, he's sort of like injured in some way. I feel like there's even a limp that. for a bit. Yeah. I didn't notice that. But he does have these scars on his face. Mm. Yeah, he does. Talk about the scars because you made a point that you wanted to come back to the scars because this is a fan art moment. Yeah. Well, it's just interesting, like, because I was deep in the fan fiction and fan art world of Harry Potter back in my day. I didn't really write anything, but I read a lot. Um, And it was always, like, interesting sort of seeing what kind of aesthetics from the movies kind of bled into accepted, like, fan canon, fanon, if you will. I didn't make that up. I didn't make that up. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, But I didn't want to just say it because I figured most people had never heard that word. Um, Anyway, and because there's like, you know, sort of divided, like some people are like really pointedly rejecting film stuff and some people are sort of embracing it and it's like sort of a split and everyone has their own look, but there's sort of things that become established. And I was always really interested in the way that Lupin's scars sort of became accepted as like something people liked and wanted to incorporate in like art and fan fiction Mm, and the scars across the face yeah there's like yeah it's like these three it sort of like looks like someone like clawed him across his face a very long time ago they're really faint scars you like sort of don't always notice them um and they're not in the books explicitly i wondered that right okay yeah it's a sort of aesthetic flourish of it kind of makes sense when you're putting something on film and you're like I want to add to the like mystery of like who is this guy what is right his deal yeah um, yeah and it's interesting because it makes him look kind of badass in a certain way which is so at odds with the soft cardigan vibe yeah it's I mean yeah it's 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 heightening the sort of contradiction of who he is but it just like struck me as really interesting that like the fan art and fiction community really embraced this way of making visual something that is I think really deliberately always invisible Mm. like that you know there's no signs there's no outward signs of him being a werewolf like that's sort of why Snape has to go to these great lengths to kind of like draw the dots for people because it's not our lesson yeah. yeah, it's all about like, you know, the, and both Hermione in the book and his friends, he reveals, like figure mm. it out because of tracking like the full moon. It's not really anything about, right. well, and like the idea that like, oh, when he's like missing, but it's sort of like his absence is what tells on him, not anything about him and his body and his presence. And I just mm. found something really interesting about, I don't really know where I'm going with it, but that like there was mm. this urge to have the invisible thing made visible. Made visible, yeah. I think that's totally right. And I, I think- I think it is that thing of embodying the contradiction of like outwardly in his social persona and his like way of being, there is nothing, scars suggest violence and there is nothing violent about the outward appearance of this man. Like he's like soft-spoken and kind and like funny and he just looks like like a dad, you know? And what is happening, what happened to him or like what is inside him that he carries the sort of like mark of of whatever that is, like a trauma of violence. Yeah. Yeah. I think I sort of want to skip to the end of the movie because that's mm. a point when we see 
that kind of realized in a different way. And there's a massive demeanor shift in him shrieking when he, shack yes, the shrieking shack o'clock, the sort of like semi-climactic moment of the movie except for then we have to go back in time and do it all over again so we have a second climax <laughs> yeah um, it's really the real climax it's a real, long scene too the emotional climax of the movie Absolutely. um when Sirius Black has kidnapped essentially Harry and his friends and Lupin mm-hmm. at the last moment bursts in apparently to save them only to their horror to choose mm-hmm. to side with Sirius Black who mm-hmm. to everyone's knowledge to the viewer and the three kids knowledge is still an escaped murderer who's here to kill Harry. Yeah, who is absolutely bananas as well, Gary Oldman. I yeah. mean, he's flipping out. And he's sort of manic, and so is Lupin when he comes in. They're both just freaking out. Yeah, yeah. And they sort of tackle each other to the ground. And, like, it's this mm-hmm. sort of great, like, bait and switch where um, Lupin sort of gets uh, Black on the ground and says, like, oh, I see, like, your outward appearance matches he doesn't say outward the appearance. Mad- like, right right yeah the outward you your look now matches the madness within and then black says you'd know all about the madness within wouldn't you remus it's the best and then you're sort of like oh so he's like calling him mad like he's on the kid's side and then he sort of like hauls black up and they just like they hug hug this like yeah. desperate clinging embrace and the kids it's are all just intense. like what <laughs> yeah, and I do. To be fair, I do remember being, you know, twelve or whatever we were when this movie came out, and that it came out, and that really um, blowing my mind as a viewer, <laughs> like the switch in that moment. Yeah, it's really yeah. good, and it sort of then gives way to this again, like as you say, complete change in his demeanor. Like he's sort of 100%. matching Black's mania, and like neither of them will let the other finish a sentence, and they kind of can't explain what's going on because they're both sort of too emotional and overcome by what's happening and then Mm -hmm. when they sort of get the story out and are like we're here to kill peter Pettigrew, who's been living as a rat for 14 years um (laughs) surprise surprise lupin i think sort of to my surprise i seem Mm -hmm. to recall certainly to my surprise like or i was like very aware of the contrast when i reread the books semi-recently is all on board for that murder and yeah oh yeah he definitely wants to kill him he's 100 percent in which honestly as i said when we rewatched the movie and i'll say it again would have been a much better call harry but yes it would have fine but it feels really uh, i mean i can't say yes. out of character but it's a surprise you'd think yeah, he'd be there to sort of talk serious down and that's emphatically not what he has come to do no it's the opposite and it's really interesting because i feel like that's the well there's something interesting about the shift because we have only seen him as a mentor figure through the eyes of kids up until this <laughs> point and obviously like for all sorts of reasons you know like here's serious we expect it to be this one thing and then the big like sort of reversal happens and it's partly a reversal because it's like he's been pining away for all of this context that he lost for the entire thing, you know, the entire film. And now all of a sudden here it is. And it's like, oh, he's not just an old, like sad, desiccated man who just exists to be an inspirational figure to kids. Like he's still a real person with his own life. And now he's full of his own feelings. Yeah. I mean, that is what interesting. I, so I, as I just alluded, I reread all of the books last year Mm. and Prisoner of Azkaban was the only book that I felt was like a good book. I was like, I enjoyed reading this and I found parts of it immensely moving. And one of those parts was this sort of scene in the shack where I think, um, you know, she makes sort of amazing use of Harry's limited perspective. And you can just really feel that he understands about 5% of what is happening at the moment. There is so much emotional context that he can see and does not remotely know how to begin to interpret right exactly and that's what makes the scene so interesting absolutely and I do think it's part of that kind of suddenly there's another level that was invisible to you before of like oh this adult has a real life of his own like you know like there is a lot happening here and uh and I mean when we get um Snape you know Snape's suspicion o'clock busting in he has that line where they've only been reunited for like five single seconds, you know, and they're like twittering away and the kids are like cowering in the corner covered with dust, having no idea what's going on. And um, Snape says too serious and Lupin says, look at you two quarreling away like an old married couple. It's just like it's instant. Like they've been reunited for two minutes. 
all when that happens. That's all it takes. Yeah. It's definitely like a sense of, yeah, just like there is, we say talk so much song. about, say it. <laughs> I wasn't going to say free song actually. I was going to talk about like sort of shorthands for intimacy and the way yeah. that different stories sort of establish how well people know each other and how deep things go. Yes. And I think that Quran does a really, and their performances do a really mm-hmm. amazing job of because Lupin's energy shifts so completely the instant he comes into contact with yeah. this person, you're yeah. just like, Oh wow! It's like chemical, yeah. Well, it's like he turns into the person he used to be. That's always yeah. the sense that I get of just sort of like, oh no, you're not dead and sad and old. Like it's just that everyone you love is was gone, and Absolutely. now one of them is back. I think that's a really interesting thing. It's like all of a sudden you sort of like pour a bunch of water into a plant. You know, he just sort of revives. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a thing, I mean, not to like keep referring to the books because we are talking about the movie, but like in the last book when the sort of like ghosts, when Harry's sort of like walking to his death and the ghosts of his parents and Sirius and Lupin who have both died by that point as well show up, they show up as their 20 something selves. They don't show up as the versions of themselves he ever even knew. That's intense. That's rough. I had forgotten that because I only read that book once and sort of like at at an arm's length. Um, The... um, you mentioned when we rewatched it too, uh, in passing, just sort of like, oh, how sad would this be if they were played as the like 35 year olds that they actually would be if you carry through the real the timeline of the story. And that struck me because I really love David Beulis and I really love Gary Oldman. And I think they both do a wonderful job. Mm-hmm. But, um, but that's an interesting thought because in actual, if you were really tracking the timeline, I suppose, because they were all actually not that old and James Lily Potter had Harry Potter like very young yeah they're like, like 21 or 22, like 22. yeah right exactly and so 13 years later I mean they're like you know Lupin and Sirius are 35 yeah when the kids are 13 you know yeah so it's just like they're very young men actually you know and I mean I know that we're talking about the film and it's different but the you making that observation of like wow how kind of tragic and weird would it be if they were actually 35 really stuck in my head Well, I feel like if they're 35, you have this different sort of level of hope of like, oh, they could have another life together after this. Not that like, you know, guys in their 40s, 50s can't, but it's like a totally different sense of like, Mm. you can sort of start anew and sort of begin a whole new chapter of your life and have years and years and years to be together. And you're much less because he spends so much time in the movie. He only gets the one scene with Sirius because he spends most of his time in the movie pining about, you know, like reminiscing about the past. It's a very different flavor if you're so much less removed from that past. Right. You if know, you're, because the thing is, if you're 50, your 20s were a long time ago. If you're 35 and the plot yes. of the movie hinges around the fact that you sit alone at night reading your old map that you made with your schoolmates for no reason. Yeah. That's alone very different. At night in your room, like a sad yeah. little man. That's gay. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's gay. That's gay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and just to he's sort of still gay, even though he's 50, but you know, yeah. But you know, when you're only 35 and you've already decided your life is over, like because your friends are gone, that's gay. Yeah. yeah. I think to sort of push forward into the sort of like dynamic between the two, the other sort of key mm-hmm. moment that the two of them have is when, of course, it turns out that all of this is taking place on the night of the new moon, which everyone, or the full moon, which everyone has forgotten. And so inconveniently begins to transform into a werewolf again, <laughs> such a pain, such a bummer. Absolutely um, hate it. And there's this really intense moment where like Sirius is sort of grappling him and like clutching him and sort of trying to like will it into not happening. And he puts his hand against Lupin's chest and says like, this is you, this is your heart. Yeah, Um, it's very intense. It's very intense and very gay. It's very homosexual. And then he transforms and they have to fight as dogs. Right. And then Sirius also transforms in order to protect the kids. And then we were like, wow, it's a dog fight they're just fighting as dogs and then two dogs um the fight kind of ends very quickly and lupin (laughs) runs away into the woods but yeah it's a very again like uh, things we've talked about especially last week actually the sort of like intense physicality of actually all of their encounters it's a lot of wrestling a lot of hugging Mm -hmm. a lot of chest clutching chest clutching which to be fair when you say it like that is not a normal thing no I mean it's more it's like you know when you're like putting I mean no it's not a normal thing to do but it's a a normal thing to do in movies when you sort of like press your hand against the other person's heart and it's like this is you 
he also Sirius also does it to Harry before he goes. He, there's yeah. a small, there's a chest clutch, and we were like, Sirius really grabs people's hearts a lot. It's very, I mean, it's very intense with Lupin. This is a thing you said something earlier that made me think of this, mm. which is like the 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 thing that Lupin and Harry share isn't quite that Harry is also gay, right? But it is sort of, in your saying, like, they've lost the same people. It's like, Mm -hmm. they are trying to reconstruct the same same family. Family, yes. Yes, And in a weird way, it's like the sort of brief moment of hope at the end of the movie is that Harry will get to have Lupin and Sirius as his two dads. My dads, my gay dads. Yes, yes. And I I think think there's something in the sort of mirroring of that gesture and sort of Sirius being, like, linked as the kind of center of this chain of three by doing that mm-hmm. sort of same loving gesture mm-hmm. to both of them and sort of uniting the three of them as this is the happy ending the three of us all get to be together raise your hand if you would have preferred that book uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> ding 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 take me there um just go home with Sirius and Lupin my gay dads if no one has written that fanfic I swear to god they have <laughs> They must have. I haven't read it, but they have. (laughs) Be the fanfic you wish to see in the world. Um, It's like, I'll have to write it myself, but no. Um, That is... The, that is the happy ending. That's totally the vision of the happy ending is that it's a re it's a reuniting and then a promise of like, Oh, and also Harry, you can be part of this family. Like you are already technically part of this family. Yeah. Which is always the sort of weird dynamic that he has with Sirius mm -hmm. and Lupin is like, we're you are part of that thing that we had that you never saw yes you're still yes you are part of it you yourself are the child of that thing we had that you never saw yeah yeah which we should we sort of skipped over it and it's sort of awkward to tack on now but like Mm. the way that it's not just harry's dad that lupin knows he knew his mom Mm. yeah and he has this line that is never explained where he's like lily was there for me at a time when no one else was which presumably is when he became a werewolf, but also like when we were watching it, I was like, oh, okay. So that's just, your mom was a really good friend to me when I came out. Yeah. Like, like yeah, it just is. Yeah. 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 Also that's the first heart to heart conversation they have. And it's yeah. so early in the movie. You're just like, okay, we're going right to this. Yes. It is instantly. Yeah. Your mom was really there for me when I came out and it was the seventies and that was an intense thing to do. And then he says to Harry, you're more like her than you know, <laughs> which is also just like, you know, so yeah. yeah. But we don't get the happy ending to my internal frustration. We don't. I mean, I realize it's probably better for like a book series to not have a happy ending in book three of seven, but uh, can't yeah. we? Um, but anyway, but again, it's like we're coming back to the inspirational teacher movie thing where it's like the thing that is left behind sort of has mm. to serve in place of getting to have the happy ending where the teacher gets to stay and gets the things that they deserve. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the packing scene is a staple of that genre, really, of the sort of thing of like, and now I have to go. You know what it's like? It reminded me of two things really viscerally. One is the end of Dead Poet Society, mm-hmm. where, you know, he comes back in for the final conversation to get his belongings and go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, even before that, there's that sad shot in Dead Poet Society where he's packing up his office and sees the new teacher with his students walking down the way and just sort of sadly waves. And it's just like the the now I have to leave behind all of the work I've done kind of moment. It reminded mm-hmm. me of that. And it, it also reminds me of the end of Mary Poppins. Oh, yeah. Because it's a, it's an identical scene. <laughs> yeah, the it's like, where, like you've learned the lesson and I get to go now. Yeah, and also the teacher, the, the teacher figure, the inspirational figure is sadder about it than they will let the child see. Yeah. That's well, the thing. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting in the sense of like that being the moment when you recap what you've learned, the thing that Harry says is like, all of this was for nothing. And- mm-hmm. Lupin's like, of course it's not. You saved a man's life, and that's yeah. worth more than you can know. Right. To me, right. his boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then he's like, his I'm husband. His to me, his husband. Uh, yeah, and he's <laughs> like, he says, like, you know, I have a feeling I'll see you again. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, and of course, like, I forget because I just forget what anything is in the timeline of these books. But the next time Harry does see them, they are together, aren't they? I think he sees him once more because like 
Sirius goes into hiding for like a year right. and I think he does see Lupin once maybe in that time but then like pretty much right they move in together straight yeah 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 at Sirius's weird house um yeah. when we get the army slash band back together um <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) but yeah, but no, instead in this moment he has to leave. And then also the line that really messed me up in this scene is that one where Harry is like disbelieving and is like, oh my God, you have to go. And Lupin says, somebody let slip the nature of my condition and parents won't want someone like me teaching their children. And I was like, well, this is the dark side of the, it's a metaphor for being gay. Yeah, I mean, and it's the part where you're like, yes, stigma and shame. Like, yes, not wanting the gays near the children, like- yeah. It's not not a thing that happens and has happened. Absolutely. And it's really sad because that seems like it's part of why he's so used to yeah. having to pack and leave, you know? Yeah, he pretty much like, says that. He's like, people yeah. like me, something, something. He says something about people like me are used to this or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but it's a big old, it's really, it's a gloomy <laughs> ending and it sort of doesn't, it's interesting that like mm. the sort of lesson, I mean, it's like the lesson he imparts is partly the Patronus thing, which is sort of yes. what saves Harry at the kind of climax. So Harry and series at the and climax Sirius. of the movie, the right. other climax, but it's also like the thing he's imparted is like, and he gives him the map, the Marauders map that him and yes. Sirius and James and Peter made. And it's sort of right. like the real lesson I've taught you is you are part of this family. Like I am, your past is not lost to you or rather it's equally lost to both of us. (laughs) Yeah. But you're not alone anymore. I feel like that is the thing is there is a sort of lurking happy ending within the gloomy ending or like, I I think you put it in a really poignant way that is exactly how I've always felt at the end of that book and movie, which is that it is the one actually resonant moment of hope in the whole series for me of like, it's the one time in the journey of these freaking books where it feels like the hope, the act, not like, not the broader social, like, are we going to defeat the ultimate evil hope, but the personal, the personal story of Harry as a human being, whose defining feature is that he lost a family could have a real, could have a new one. Like the idea of the hope of like, actually in some way that family still exists and you can still be part of it. Yeah. I mean, and frankly, not to like go off on a big old tangent, but like, I think that's the reason the books just get worse and worse from that point on. You've destroyed mm-hmm. the hope of Harry ever getting the one thing he wanted. And I think that's why people responded to Sirius's death later the way that they did. Yeah, because, because it's just that's like- that hope dying, you know? Yeah, sort of out of nowhere and really cheaply. And yes. I think not recognizing the power of that actually being what we care about a lot more than we care about Voldemort- 100%. Is the why actual... the books just get worse and worse after the third one. Agreed. Because that sort of tiny human story of this wounded child searching for like a meaningful family unit is actually the thing that we all thought was beautiful. Yeah. And sort of once you've crushed it as like unjustly and like Mm -hmm. frustratingly and like I don't think those are necessarily bad feelings again for a sort of midpoint in a story. But once you've sort of crushed it so determinedly in this moment, it's like, Mm. well, now these story, this books can only ever be horribly sad. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I think we care about these characters extra much like Lupin and Sirius because they are, you know, already fighting a sort of a difficult battle. Like they're already wounded, traumatized people who've experienced all this loss at a quite young age. And we don't need to see them destroyed further again when they've already lost so much. We didn't need that. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I think that's the sort of, it's the, it's the fine balance, right? Because we've sort of been joking Mm. about like the sad gay longing and like the Mm. sort of like queerness of that feeling. But I think Mm. this is what I love so much about the thing that you said, the thing that works so much about uh, Lupin in the movie in particular is that like the sadness is balanced with joy. He is this sort of sad waif of a man who sits alone (laughs) in his room mourning his lost friends. But the lesson he's come to teach is the things you hold on to are the happiest moments of your life. And those will give you strength in the future. Those aren't just weights that hold you down. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like that's the thing of like, you know, the wistfulness of all of this and our, our sort of forever frustration. I, I feel like the sadness of like, damn, JK Rowling turned out to be a bag of trash is I feel like what people are actually mourning is the fact that that the people who needed to see that lesson in the books and films 
saw it at potentially critical times in their lives. And that Mm -hmm. lesson might've actually really mattered to people, particularly marginalized people, because that's a really Mm -hmm. like beautiful thing. And it's so, you know, I mean, it's an interesting, like it's, it's still legible in the film, even though obviously I understand the, I don't know, even though we all feel complicatedly about it now, because it's like, how could someone terrible have concocted that lesson? You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's like, I feel really, I feel emotional about it. Like right now, I genuinely. Do too. Um, I do too. <laughs> in, yeah. Again, though, in a way that is so much more about the conversation we've had right now, rather right. than anything that any of the story that yeah. you went on to tell. Yes. Yeah. 100%. It's like yeah. much more about, again, this close reading, the sort of like spaces between that evidently unintentionally are filled with what seems like a very self-evident meaning. But that's yeah. sort of what we're doing in this podcast overall, isn't it? I yes. think, you know, some of the movies we've talked about, I feel like it's there on purpose. Some of the movies we've talked about, I don't think it's there on purpose at all. But in almost all of them, I genuinely believe that the things that we're talking about it's uh, yeah. are there. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's the sort of secret, like, that is so what we're doing here with these conversations is sort of partly to celebrate the places where that it doesn't matter that it wasn't intended by the creators always if it's being received by the people who need it in that way. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't matter if they put it there on purpose. Yeah, yeah. Though in this case, he did. Though in this case, in Alfonso Coron's case, he did, which I find interesting. Yeah, and I yeah. think that definitely we can conclude according to Alfonso Crone and <laughs> successfully conveyed by his film. Yes. Lupin is gay. This werewolf is gay, y'all. <laughs> and that's that. I'm so glad that I could exercise this sort of demon of my 13-year-old life. I love it. Makes me want to read all that fanfic. Listen, I sent you I sent you the greatest Remus Lupin fanfic of all time and you should go read it now. Okay, maybe I will. And while Emma's off doing that, thank you all so much for joining us um, for the penultimate installment of Spooktober. Um, If you need to get your gay fix in the interim, you can follow us on Instagram. Oh, yes, you can at This Movie is Gay podcast. And you should also subscribe to the feed of choice wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating, which some people have done. Leave us a review even. <gasps> Do um, Share your thoughts. We are always happy to hear from you. Um, and so until next time. Good to be sober to you.